Good morning, and thank you for being here. We're so thankful that you made time to be with us this morning. My name's Craig, and I'm the senior pastor, and it is our privilege to have you with us. I do want to especially thank Cole, who's leading our worship team for us this morning. Pastor Kevin is away with his sweet wife for a little while, but so grateful for um, all the, the ways that we have folks that can step in and, and uh, lead here in so many different ways. So we're grateful for that, and I appreciate that you're here. Um, there's a lot going on. A lot of you participated in our women's event this weekend. So grateful for how well that went. I've heard great things about it already. Uh, many of you will be a part of a student conference that will be here this coming weekend on Friday and Saturday. And uh, So you're all looking forward to that. You'll hear some things about a men's conference. There's a barbecue that's getting started. And in the middle of all the things that we have going on in our church, I want to encourage you for just a few minutes to sort of forget about all that and focus on the moment where we are. Uh, just one moment to be together worshiping the Lord and hearing from His Word. Last week, we began a sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, actually, we began it in the Beatitudes. And if you know much about the New Testament or about Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus, probably Jesus' most popular or most famous teaching. And the Beatitudes are sort of the introductory part of that. Um, they're not a list of things that you have to do so that Jesus will love you. No, no. The Beatitudes are more like a manifesto for Christian living, a list of the things that you should do if you belong to Jesus. In other words, if you are a follower of Jesus, the Beatitudes should be a description of how it is that you live your life. As we're going to see over the course of the next several weeks, the Beatitudes are very countercultural. In other words, the things that we are expected to do as followers of Jesus doesn't always look super American. And, and, and that's because we're called to be citizens first and foremost of another kingdom, of Jesus' kingdom. And as a result of that, we're going to look different than our neighbors. We're going to look different than the people that we work beside because we're going to be the people that prioritize something like poverty and spirit that we looked at last Sunday. This week, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. And in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand. Well, actually, just go ahead and stand. In honor of that word, as I said to you, um, our readings over the next several weeks will be super short. If you're in one of our life groups, most of our life groups do sermon-driven discipleship. And so you'll be asked to read the scripture next week. Go ahead and text your life group leader and volunteer because it's just one verse. So if you've been trying to work up the courage to read scripture in your life group, uh, just go ahead and volunteer to do it for the next six weeks because it's going to be super easy sledding. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 4. And the Bible says this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we could find comfort. But even more, Lord God, that we might first find discomfort. Discomfort in our own sin and discomfort, Lord God, in the, the sinful culture in which we live. May we find in you hope. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. We're approaching the four-year anniversary of COVID, right? Everybody kind of remembers that. About this time, four years ago, we began to hear little whispers in the news about this virus that was running around. And, and of course, it wasn't too long before it was in Seattle, and then I think it was in New York. And then, lo and behold, little Camden, South Carolina becomes like the third epicenter. It was the strangest thing in the world for us to get that privilege, right? Um, and, and many of you remember what a challenging time that was. We as a church body wrestled through all of the things now, what's funny is we've grown so much in the last few years, there's only about half of you that even remember those days. But we shut down and, and did everything online for about four weeks, and we gathered together on Easter Sunday in, in 2020, 
And it was such a wonderful experience. People gathered together outside in the parking lot and they worshiped the Lord together. And, and as everybody gathered and worshiped, what I saw in that day was, was people weeping, pulling into a parking lot to sit out in the open air and just weeping because they had missed the fellowship of other believers so desperately. And I was so convicted by that that, that I, I, I decided along with our other leadership that no matter what it took, we were going to commit ourselves to in-person worship. And here at Malvern Hill, we took Paul's, Paul's adage seriously. We tried to become all things to all people. If you'll recall in those days, there were, there were some people, some of you, who were very fearful that, that this could be the thing that would take you out of, of, of this world, right? You were fearful that it could actually kill you. Uh, we know people that died from that disease. There were others of you that were convinced that it was nothing more than government overreach and a conspiracy. Well, the truth, of course, was somewhere in the middle. It was a whole lot of government overreach, and it was a whole lot of sickness, and they all kind of ran together. But especially in those first months, there was so much confusion, and we were just trying our best to figure out what the best way to approach all the things. And so when we decided that we were going to prioritize in-person worship, we knew that not everybody would be comfortable, and so we said we were going to do whatever it takes to worship outdoors. And so we did that for a little while, and then it started to get hot, and some of y'all started to get soft on me, and you're like, oh, I'm so hot and sweaty. And I'm like, y'all, I'm up here dying, and y'all are complaining because y'all had already moved back into the shade. I remember, right? People kept sliding further and further back and finding shady spots. And, um, but again, we wanted to be all things to all people, and so we actually worked diligently, and our, our AV techs and all of our sound crew, um, they, they worked hard to make sure that we could worship in the parking lot, and so I preached outdoors uh, and some folks sat in their cars. Some of you are members today, and you began your journey at Malvern Hill sitting in a car in the parking lot. Uh, there were others that couldn't take the heat anymore, and you came inside. And indoors, we piped in the sermon live, so I preached outside. We had a live praise team in here. Every Sunday, we had two praise teams that were working, and, and I would preach out there, and it would come in here. And I still remember those of you that suffered in the heat with me, by the way. Y'all are my favorite people. There were a couple of y'all that just plop your chair down right in the middle and just say, here I am, we're all in this together. Um, but regardless, after a little while further, we recognized that we wanted to have life groups. And so we, I wish y'all could see the work that Ke Pastor Kevin put in to create these massive spreadsheets so we could figure out where we could put life groups so they'd have the opportunity to social distance if they felt most comfortable. Some of our life groups even met outdoors. There were some folks in there that had some compromised immunity and they, they didn't feel comfortable being in enclosed spaces, and, but they still wanted to be together with the people of God. And so they gathered together outside on our property. There were life groups that met in here. I mean, literally, they met everywhere just so that we could do our best to prioritize the in-person gathering of God's people. And it did seem at times as though the rules changed week to week, overnight, just boom, just that quick. And in the midst of all of that, um, I, I had to continue to, to, to put in place some pretty harsh things like our staff. We didn't allow any of our staff to meet, to be in the same office or the same room together because I didn't want to get into a scenario where, as a staff, we got lazy and decided we were going to have lunch around the table and then got all of us sick. And then you guys suddenly couldn't gather for worship because we hadn't been disciplined in our own part, right? So we did all these things. In the middle of all that, we had a meeting, and we lots of meetings. And in the middle of a deacon's meeting one night, I'll, I'll never forget, uh, somebody asked a question. The question was rather innocuous. There was absolutely nothing wrong with the question, but the question was something along the lines of, well, Pastor, we've been doing all of it this way. What if we changed and did this? And for whatever reason, that question just hit me 100% sideways. Everything about that question hit me wrong. Now, fortunately, I didn't get angry, and I'm, I'm really grateful to this day that I didn't, but instead, it was, it was so much more embarrassing. I didn't get mad. I just, 
I just began to cry. I don't know if y'all have ever cried in front of people. It's not a comfortable feeling, right? I, I just began to weep. I mean, it was just overwhelming in that particular moment. And I was embarrassed, and I was frustrated, and I was tired. And I, I'll never forget our, our chairman of deacons at that time. He said, we just need to end the meeting and go home. And I said, we can't. Just because Craig cried doesn't mean we can go home. We still have things that have to be taken care of. Well, the next day, I called a friend. Y'all are wondering where this story is going. The next day, I called a friend, and I told him all about how embarrassed I was. And about three days later, a package arrived for me in the mail. And, uh, and it was addressed to me. It came to my house. And, and when I got there, there were, there were two things in that package. And the first thing was that there was, uh, there was a, a package of, of handkerchiefs in there. And there was a bottle of lavender bubble bath. And that sweet friend had sent me that package and said, Hey, sweetheart, next time you need to cry, here's some handkerchiefs and some lavender bubble bath to make it all better. What a jerk, you know? I mean, with friends like that, what do I even need? Well, the joke's on him because ever since then, I've carried a handkerchief in my pocket almost every day. Uh, I carry it, um, you know, so I have, you know, I have daughters, so sometimes they cry. They need a handkerchief occasionally. Um, uh, I, I use it to wipe my glasses. I use it to dry my hands for all those horrible places that have those air dryers and don't actually have paper towels. Uh, but mostly, I just keep it in my back pocket as a reminder that sometimes it's okay to cry. Right? Sometimes it's okay. Um, and, um, and that's kind of where we find ourselves today. Sometimes it's, it's appropriate. The psalmist said in Psalm 30, verse 5, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Today, in this sermon, I've gone with a little play on those words, and joy comes with the morning. See what I did there? M-O-U-R. It's pretty good, right? Um, and uh, I'm trying. I'm trying really hard to be creative. It's a challenge. But that's where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. We've got Jesus with these words. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, this seems to be the craziest thing that maybe Jesus has ever said. Happy or joyous are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Y'all, I don't know about you, but usually in the midst of my mourning, when someone has died or something terrible has happened, I don't usually feel joyful. And yet Jesus says that in the midst of our mourning, there is joy to be discovered. And the reason is because Jesus is not talking primarily about the mourning over the loss of a thing or a person. Jesus here is speaking of spiritual mourning. A brokenness over our own sin and the sins of others around us. Jesus says that in the middle of that mourning, there is joy to be discovered. This morning in this passage of scripture, I want us to look at three things that I believe we can take away from this particular beatitude. Three admonitions that I want you to pay close attention to. The first one this morning is that you need to be broken over your own sin. Broken over your own sin. Um, you know, we are, we are grateful for grace extended to us in salvation. The Bible is very clear. Uh, we, we've been saved by grace alone through faith alone. Why? So that no one may boast. It's the gift of God completely. But sometimes that grace in our lives can become a bit of a hindrance. And it can become a bit of a hindrance because we begin to presume upon that grace. 
Came across this quote from John Stott. John Stott said, I fear that we evangelical Christians, by making much of grace, sometimes thereby make light of sin. But I want, to know, I want you to know this. You rarely make light of the sin in others. You make light of the sin in your own life. Right? You, you, it's, it's almost never the case that somebody cuts you off in traffic and you go, oh, bless their heart. I bet they're just having a bad day. But it is regularly the case that you cut somebody off in traffic and you go, oh, I'm so sorry, no big deal. And just, right? I'm on my way to church. i got to get there. Why? We, we have this tendency to see the sin in others. In other words, to see the speck in our brother's eye, but ignore the plank in our own eye. Listen to me. There is no salvation in Christ without brokenness over sin. And we may be more specific to say there is no salvation in Christ without brokenness over our own sin. Now, brokenness might look slightly different in different people. Some of y'all cry with, with laundry detergent commercials. You know, Some of y'all just find a way to weep about next to nothing. And so there's some people for whom brokenness over their sin is going to be characterized by lots of external emotion. There are others of you for whom that brokenness might look a little bit differently. And it might not be as, as publicly um, visible. But the reality is, however it comes down, there is no such thing as salvation in Jesus Christ without there being brokenness over our sin, with a, a deep sense of mourning over what it is that we have done. We're going to see in just a minute about how important it is that we be broken for the world around us, but y'all, I want you to know that before you're going to be able to do anything to the world around you for the cause of Jesus Christ, you've got to first be broken over the sin of the person that stares at you in the, at, in the face in the morning. Too often in the church, we're really good at screaming about the sins of others without actually wrestling with our own sin. I almost jumped up and down because the other part of that sin is this. Some of y'all love to say, the church has got to get right. But when you say the church has got to get right, you never say, I have to get right. That's right. We can still be Pharisees who are not pointing the finger outside the walls of the church. We can be Pharisees who are pointing the finger at the person sitting beside us on Sunday mornings. We've got to focus on us first. Throughout the history of revivals in this country and across the West, revivals have rarely taken place. And I mean great revivals of religion. They've rarely taken place primarily because preachers have screamed at those outside the church and their need to come to Jesus. Instead, it's because people inside of God's church have become incredibly aware of their own sinful estate and broken over it. And as a result of that, God has moved within the church body and the people within the church body have made an impact on the world outside of them. But we can't worry about that until we worry about us. We've got to be broken over our own sin. And y'all, that's challenging because brokenness is really counterculture in modern-day America. Brokenness is very counterculture. Now, let me just give you two examples. Now, now, I would say to some degree, spiritual godly brokenness has always been counterculture. But it is very different in our world today. A few years ago, purely by accident, I read the book of Job in my Bible, and I read the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, at the same time. I know I'm that nerdy, okay? Just live with it. Um, but when I did, I was struck by, by, by a theme that ran throughout both. Job is, is possibly, probably the oldest book in the Bible. And Job lived during the same time as the patriarchs would have lived, okay? And, and so Job's 
story, as you're aware, is filled with this man who's trying to follow the Lord, but is just broken over and over and over again. Just weeping, mourning, crying out to the Lord. Well, I read Homer's Odyssey at the same time, a story written from a pagan perspective, but with a great hero named Odysseus. And what struck me is that in Homer's epic, Odysseus weeps and mourns and cries over and over and over again. Historically, the picture of what cultures have perceived to be strong, good men from a Hebrew perspective, godly men have been those men who were willing to be broken and remorseful. Now, let's fast forward to American culture. About 20 years ago, I had a conversation with a man who at the time was a member of the church I attended. Before I came here, he's an older man. Somehow the conversation turned to politics. Um, it was at Waffle House, and I guess that's what always happens at Waffle House. I'm not sure, um, but uh, it was it was a group of, of mostly older men. And how I ended up there, I actually they invited me. I do remember that now. Why don't you come and drink coffee with us one morning? And I think they ambushed me. So I got there, and we're having a, a conversation about politics. Now this is in in the early 2000s, middle 2000s, and and somehow or other the conversation turns to Bill Clinton, and and the man that was talking was a I mean died in the in the wool. Blue Dog Democrat. That, that's who he was. And so his commitment to Bill Clinton at that time was such that when somebody asked him about Bill Clinton's indiscretions with Monica Lewinsky, his answer was he can't be held accountable for that because she threw herself upon him. Right? Yeah, this little woman overpowered this six-foot-four behemoth. That's exactly what happened. All right? So that, that's then. All right? Now... President Trump, 2021, I think it was, is interviewed. And he has, he's asked this specific question. He said, have you ever asked God for forgiveness? And he replied this way. I'm not sure I have. I, I just go on and try to do a better job from there. I don't think so. I, I think if I do something wrong, I think I just try to make it right. I, I don't bring God into that picture. I don't. On both ends of the political spectrum, here's what bothered me and continues to bother me. Christians defend those answers because they have a perspective, a desire to prove their political point. And so we say things like, well, it's different. It, it, they, they just didn't understand. Or we begin to water down our Christian convictions and we say things like, well, they just haven't been properly discipled. Y'all, there is no discipleship until we've gotten to a place where we are broken over our sin. No one has ever come to Jesus Christ without acknowledging their sin and begging for forgiveness. That means a pastor, a politician, or a first grade teacher. No one. We've got to do that. And we have to understand that it is counterculture in American society for us to even dream about admitting that we are wrong and certainly to admit that we are broken. Y'all, here's the truth. We at some point are going to have to decide whether or not we want to be good Americans or we want to be good followers of Jesus Christ. And I love this country. But my first priority is to a different kingdom, right? And Western culture that is much larger than America, Western culture does not celebrate broken humans. It celebrates power. 
And Jesus is different. And in his beatitudes, he's calling us to be part of a different kind of kingdom. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. We've got to be willing to be broken, mournful over our own sin. And we can't do that until we're willing to look in the mirror and say, woe is me. For I'm a man of unclean lips as Isaiah did. Or as the, prof, the, the Apostle Paul did when the Apostle Paul said what? I am the chief of sinners. When's the last time that you looked in the mirror and said, man, now there is a sinful man in desperate need of a Savior. Oh, we don't do that often because not only are we not always broken over our own sin, we're not broken over the sin of others. So we've got to be first to be broken over our own sin. But the second thing is we've got to be broken over the sin of others. Part of the reason we're not broken over the sin of others is why? Because it's a lot easier for me to get mad at them and point out their sin than it is to have the, the spotlight turned on me. How many of y'all have ever been in that spot where you're sitting there and you're honest and truly, like you're just going, oh boy, oh boy, I hope they keep talking about that guy because if they stop talking about him, they might notice me. Right? Any, any of you ever been there? Uh, I came across a, a video somewhere recently. It's probably something somebody sent me off social media. And a guy stands up and he's giving uh, the best man's speech for his brother. And, um, and as he's giving the best man's speech, he said, and there's one thing I need to share with you. When we, when we were 11 years old, 20 years ago, I took some of your paintballs and I threw them on our neighbor's door. And nobody would believe that you didn't do it because you were the only one who had a paintball gun. And as he's telling this, the camera pans and the brother, his mouth begins to, his jaw drops and it starts panning to the other groomsmen, apparently who were all a part of this whole growing up crowd and they're all in utter amazement. And this kid said, look, this man, he said, I never confessed to that because I didn't want to lose my privileges playing the video game. Listen, he said, I didn't want anybody looking at me. So when they started asking, he said, I just kept my mouth shut and nobody looked my way. How many of y'all have ever been there? Man, I just keep my mouth shut. But then even better, you can go, did you look over there at what this guy has? That's what happens in our sinful estate. We're not broken over the sins of others because, hey, if, if I have to look at them, then who knows where I might end up. Look, Jesus approached Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19 and he weeped over, weeped, wept over Jerusalem. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks. Remember, these are the people who have opposed Jesus' teaching. These are the people who will kill Jesus, and yet Jesus is weeping over them. Look at this. Our response to the sin of others reveals our devotion to God and his missionary call. I'm convinced that this is true. Our response to the sin of others reveals our devotion to God and His missionary call. In other words, when I see sin around me, does it break my heart? Or do I just find ways to be angry at those people who are participating in sins that are different than the sins I struggle with? Does, does the sin in the lives of others drive me to carry the hope of Jesus Christ to those people? Or do I allow the sin of others 
to drive me towards being angry and hateful towards those people. Y'all, when's the last time that you began to mourn for those who are caught in their sin? Are you broken or are you fighting? And this is what we lose in these culture wars that we wrap ourselves up in. We get so busy fighting with those people out there that we forget that the people who are out there are out there precisely because they've not been exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be weeping for those broken sinners. But instead, we're too busy yelling at those broken sinners. Look, true brokenness drives us to respond. I came across this somewhere in, in my studies this week that, that broken, that mourning that Jesus talks about, this mournfulness in our spirits really looks a lot more like contrition than it does confession. Because when I'm broken, here's the reality, words are cheap. I mean, honestly, we don't have any skin in the game when I say, oh, bless that person's heart. I put skin in the game when I say, oh, I see that person in their sinful estate and I seek to offer to help them. I offer them hope and healing. I go to them with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I seek to be a hand up to those people in the gutter. What's it look like for me to really be broken over the sin of others? Y'all, some of that means that we've got to be willing to be uncomfortable. We've got to be willing to be hurt for the cause of Christ. Listen to what A.W. Tozier says. A.W. Tozier says, The devil, things, and people being what they are, it is necessary for God to use the hammer, the file, and the furnace in his holy work of preparing a saint for true sainthood. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. We build these calluses around our hearts to keep us from being hurt or offended, to keep us from seeming weak. And in those places, we cease to be available to God's work. We cease to be available for God to use us because we are so busy pushing everything else out there instead of being willing to be broken, hurt, concerned. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. We've got to be broken over our own sins. We've got to be broken over the sins of others. And then finally, we've got to be confident in God's promised comfort. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, I believe it is, the prophet speaking the Lord's word to God's people says, Comfort, comfort, O my people. Why did they need to be comforted? Because they were in distress, right? Only those who are in distress need to be comforted. We watched some basketball at my house last night. It's so great to be a Carolina fan right now and have another thing other than girls basketball that we can cheer for. You know, it's, it's about time. Um, and so that was great to watch my Gamecocks beat the Bulldogs yesterday. It was wonderful. Uh, but you know what? There were some moments of distress in there. When you fall, you fall behind by 10 points, you begin to worry. But you know what? When you're up by 10, nobody needs to be comforted in that place. There's not a North Carolina fan in the building that needs comfort today after the whipping they put on Duke last night. Sorry, guys. I saw it. It was ugly. 
Nobody needs to be comforted, right? We only need to be comforted when we are in distress. And so when the prophet pronounces comfort to God's people, they were in distress. Y'all, we only need comfort from the Lord, right? Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. We only need it when we are actually willing, willing to mourn, to be broken. I can trust God's hand and his heart because I can trust his word. I can be broken because I can be 100% confident that God won't leave me there. He comes to me in my brokenness. He draws near to the brokenhearted. Those are his words of promise and comfort. We've got to be willing to be broken, but we've also got to be willing to be confident in God's promise comfort. To trust in it. But we've got to trust in God's comfort. Some of the reason that we find ourselves so discouraged in this world is because we look for this world to satisfy the longings that can only be satisfied from an eternal God. The book of Ecclesiastes says that God put eternity to our hearts. C.S. Lewis says that our longing for something greater is great evidence that God actually exists. Look, we can't expect this world to fulfill our longings and desires. There's something more there, and that something more is Jesus Christ. And it's not just what Jesus offers us in this world. That something more is what Jesus offers us in the world to come. We look forward to that Revelation 21 world where God wipes away every tear from our eyes, where there's no more death and destruction and pain. Some of you and some people in our world begin to be so frustrated because you're looking for this world to satisfy longings that only Jesus can fulfill. I have four kids. Most of the time they're good kids. Ish. Um, they were all in the early service so I can talk all kind of trash about them. Unless y'all tell them, they'll never know. Um, but I do. I have four kids. And, and there are things that I can help them with. Um, and so, like, if, if they want to know how to change a tire, I can actually teach them how to do that. If they want to learn how to get big and strong, I can actually teach them how to lift weights. I can do that with them. You know what I can't teach any of them to do? I cannot teach them to hit a curveball. If my life depended on it, I can't teach them how to curve. I can't really teach them how to throw because there's a lot of girls in here that throw better than I do. That's just the truth, right? It's hurtful, but it's true. I, I throw like, like a, an eight-year-old girl or something. It's, it's just bad. It's, it's ugly. It's not anything that anybody wants to imitate. And so if my kids decide that the only way that they can be satisfied in me as their father is for me to teach them to throw a curveball, then let me tell you something. They're going to be disappointed. I'm never going to be the father they want, and they're never going to be satisfied in me because they're going to be desiring something from me that I'm pretty convinced that I wasn't designed to be able to do. So often, we run to the world and ask the world to satisfy longings that were put into us by an eternal God that can only be satisfied in an eternal salvation. I look to politics to fulfill all of my needs and you'll get, you'll get let down. And it's not just politics. Like That's one of the hobby horses that I love to stand on. We were watching a football playoff game, NFL playoff game a few weeks ago. 
And as the game ended, the camera panned onto the, into the crowd. And there was a man, a grown man, not in the family section, not on the field, not on the sidelines, a grown man, a fan in the stands, openly weeping because his football team had lost. Listen to me. If you can weep because your NFL or your MLB or your college football team or your high school football team that your son or daughter is not playing on, if you can weep because they lost, you've got an idolatry problem because you're investing in those teams something that you shouldn't give to them. If you can weep because your presidential candidate, your gubernatorial candidate loses, you've invested too much and you have an idolatry problem. Our hope must be set in nothing less than Jesus' blood and His righteousness. And what it is that we're longing for is joy, immeasurable joy, and it can only be found ultimately and finally at the end of all things when Jesus brings His bride home. So where does that leave us this morning? Ultimately, it leaves us with this question. Do you mourn? Are you actually willing to be broken on the anvil of God's love for you? I carry these little handkerchiefs as a reminder that it's okay to cry. But even if it wasn't okay by the world's standards, it is expected in God's kingdom that His children be broken. So this morning, as we draw to a conclusion, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, and he, he, let me explain what I mean by that. I, I don't mean... Have you come to church regularly? I don't mean are you a member of the church. I don't mean are you a life group leader. I mean if you don't know Jesus. I mean like honest and truly if you died today. If you knew. If you know today that if you were to die and you stood before the Lord. And he said why should I let you into my heaven. You'd have absolutely no good answer. In other words if you knew today that you died and you'd go, you'd go to hell. I, I want you to know. That Jesus died to set you free from your sin. He died to deliver you. He died to give you eternal life. He died to satisfy your deepest longings. But salvation is available only for those who are willing to be broken over their sin. To actually acknowledge, God, I am a sinner and I have nothing to bring to the table here. And I need you to save me. I need you to rescue me. If you're willing to be broken in that way, I want you to know that today can be the day that you can be certain of your salvation. And nothing would thrill my soul more than for the opportunity to introduce you to Jesus today. But there are some of you here today who are believers who have bought the lie that you can spend your whole life pointing out the sin of others without looking in the mirror on a regular basis and acknowledging your own sin and shame.
You've bought the lie that you can be an arrogant follower of Jesus. Oh, you've bought the lie well because you've convinced yourself that you're not arrogant. You're just, you know, the protector of the flock, the defender of orthodoxy or something. No, no, it's, it's your job to help others see their sin. The Bible says the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. And if you're not aware of your own sin, perhaps it's because you've been so busy trying to be the Holy Spirit in somebody else's life and you've not actually allowed the Holy Spirit to work in your own. There are believers here today who've been robbed of their power to serve faithfully in God's kingdom because you've become so convinced that you're so incredibly important in God's kingdom that you stop relying on the Lord to work in your own life. I've been there. And some of you need to admit today that you're there. That you need to be broken. You may discover, you will discover, that that which God desires, as Pastor Buster read earlier, is a broken and a contrite heart. This morning, in this moment as we stand and sing, I invite you to come. If you'd like to come up here and pray. One of our brothers came in the first service and just fell down before the Lord and poured his heart out. Wherever it is, however it is that God's work in your life, as we sing, I invite you to come. Join with me as we pray. Father God in heaven, I love you and praise you and thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for the reminder that we've had to be mournful of our own sin, to be broken. I pray, Lord God, that we would find our hope in Jesus, whose name we pray. Amen.